0: And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. It came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass which the Lord hath made known unto us. And as the shepherds did so many years ago, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass in the birth of this one that's called the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Now, our first introduction to Bethlehem, the Word of God, is actually in Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35, ahead of different name but Jacob was traveling with his wife Rachel who is expecting a baby look at Genesis chapter 35 and uh, verses 16 through 20 we'll have our first introduction to the city a place called Bethlehem and in Genesis 35 verse number 16 the word of God says and they journeyed that is Jacob and Rachel they journeyed from Bethel and there was a little way to come to Ephrath. That's the same place that we call Bethlehem today. And Rachel travailed, chapter 35 of Genesis, verse number 16. And she had hard labor. Verse 17, And it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was in the parting before she died, that she called his name Benonah. But his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is, do you see it there? Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. And so Bethlehem is Rachel's burying place. But it was Benjamin's, Jacob's youngest son, it was Benjamin's birthplace. Rachel's son of sorrow. That's what it meant when she called him Bononi, son of sorrow. She, uh, Rachel's son of sorrow was born where the man of sorrows would be born. We see Jesus called the man of sorrows in Isaiah chapter 53. Take you your Bible there. The prophet Isaiah prophesied of Christ. Isaiah 53 and verse number 3 when he said, He is despised and rejected a man, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and we hid as were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And so we see that where Rachel's son of sorrow was born, the man of sorrows would come to earth. The fullness of Rachel's sorrow in Bethlehem is actually prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31. In Jeremiah 31, you'll this will be familiar to you once, once we read it. You'll say, oh yeah, I remember that. And it's prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse number 15. The fullness of Rachel's sorrow. Thus saith the Lord, Jeremiah 31, 15. Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rahel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. So it was prophesied. It was prophesied of something that was going to happen in Bethlehem, Rachel's sorrow in Bethlehem. And it was fulfilled in another record of the Christmas story that we have in Matthew chapter 2. If you go to the New Testament, look at Matthew chapter 2, we'll see the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. In Matthew chapter 2, in verses 16 through 18, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, remember how they came seeking where Christ was born, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men, then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, and Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. And so we see the fullness of Rachel's weeping. Prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31, fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2. Again, this record of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, God talks so much about Bethlehem. Approximately 400 years after the death of Rachel, God recorded for us where the Christ would be born in the prophet Micah. Micah, Nahum, Abekah, right? Back in, in those uh, scriptures, in Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2. 400 years after, this is 400 years now, after the death of Rachel that we just read about in Gen- Genesis 35. God records for us where the Christ child should be born. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though thou be little amongst the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Now I want you to understand, Christ was not born in Bethlehem. Christ arrived in Bethlehem. Christ is eternal. You see, he came as a man. To in Bethlehem, he was born as a man in Bethlehem. We have to remember that Christ is the eternal Son of God, co equal in existence, co equal in power, co equal in authority, co equal in every other way. So much so that Christ, the Bible tells us, thought it not robbery to make himself equal with God. And so we see there that 400 years after Rachel's death, God recorded for us where he would be born. Now, If we were to talk a little bit more about this prophecy, before Micah's prophecy, a long time, hundreds of years before Micah's prophecy, we are introduced to two women. One of them was named Naomi, and the other one was named Ruth. Now, when we're introduced to Naomi and Ruth, uh, they're going back to, guess where? Bethlehem. That was Naomi's hometown, and uh, there had been a famine in the land and Naomi had moved to Moab with her husband and her two sons. Now the Word of God does not indicate exactly when, but when they were in Moab, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And rather than going back to Bethlehem, Naomi stayed in Moab and, uh, and, and, and her two, with her two sons, Malon and Chilion. And uh, those two young men Ended up, they she stayed there so long. Those two young men grew up in Moab, uh, and they took wives of the pagan Moabites. And one of those wives' names was Orpa, not Oprah. Orpa, and the other one's name, you know her name, Ruth. Ruth. Well, there came a time when Naomi's sons died. Now she's left of her husband. She didn't have a husband. two sons are dead. And she urges her daughters-in-law to go back to their families. And Orpah went back to her family. But Ruth, she refused to leave. Now take your Bible and turn to the book of Ruth. It's way back. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Way back in the beginning. And we're going to see what Ruth had to say to Naomi when she urged her to go back to her family. In verse number 16 of Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1 verse 16. Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee for whither thou goest I will go and where thou lodgest I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people and thy God my God. Where thou diest will I die and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also if aught but death part thee and me. Isn't that wonderful? This pagan woman trusted in the God of Naomi. And then we see in verse number 19, so they too went until they came to, where'd they go? Bethlehem. It came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them. They said, is this Naomi? Naomi came home. And all the city was moved by her story. And Ruth's faithfulness, I'm sure. Naomi... Uh, and Ruth returned to Beth- Bethlehem. And when Ruth moved to Bethlehem, we're going to fast forward through this. This is going to be the Cliffs Nose version. And so and we don't have any amount of time this morning to talk about everything that we could talk about. But when Ruth moved to Bethlehem, she met a man by the name of Boaz. Remember that? Boaz was a Bethlehemite. The two of them married. They lived in Bethlehem. They had a son, and they named him Obed. Remember that? Obed grew up. He got married. And he had a son. And that son's name was, you know his name? Jesse. His son named Jesse. Now Jesse grew up. And he got married and had eight sons. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'm probably more excited about this story than anybody else this morning. Because I know where we're going. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Verse number 1. Lord said unto Samuel, and Samuel was the prophet, God's man in that day, how long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel now? Israel already had a king. His name was Saul. And he wasn't doing such a good job. Fill thine horn with oil, and go, I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And so the prophet Samuel took his horn of oil and went on an errand to anoint a new king in the city of Bethlehem. See Bethlehem, look at verses 10 through 12. Again, Jesse, now he's with Jesse, the son of Obed, right? And again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children. And he said, Well, there remaineth yet the youngest. And behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he, this eighth son of Jesse, was ruddy, and with all of a beautiful countenance, goodly to look on, to look to. The Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of the brethren. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And so there we see this wonderful story. It was uh, about David. See, we're now, now looking at David. And, and I don't think that there was anything more precious to David than his inheritance. Bethlehem had belonged to Boaz. It was passed down from his great-grandfather Boaz to his grandfather Obed. Passed down from his grandfather Obed to his father Jesse. You say, well, how? what leads you to believe that, that Bethlehem was such a precious possession to David? In 2 Samuel chapter 23, in 2 Samuel chapter 23, David was in the cave of Adullam. And the Philistines had a garrison of soldiers. Guess where they were? Here in Bethlehem. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, now now of all the things that David could have wished for, look at what he wishes for. In 2 Samuel 23 verse 13, in the Three of the 30 chief went down and uh, came to David in the harvest time the cave of Adullam and the troop of the Philistines pitched in the valley of Rephaim David was then in hold and the garrison of Philistines was then in Bethlehem and David longed and said oh that one would give me drink of the water of the well of where? Bethlehem. Bethlehem which is by the gate and some of David's mighty men risked their lives to bring back David Water. And the well was at the gate of Bethlehem. Of all the things he could have wished for. Can you imagine? He just wanted to drink of water from his hometown. Fast forwarding through David's life, we find King David at the end of his reign. Remembering how a man by the name of Barzillai cared for him, while escaping from the wrath of David's son Absalom, instructed Solomon... The next king of Israel, or the next king, to show kindness under the sons of Barzillai. Now, Barzillai had defended David. And David tried to convince Barzillai to go back to Jerusalem with him. But Barzillai said, No, but, but you could take my son. And he had a son by the name of Chimham. And so David took Chimham and went back to. Jerusalem, and then so David comes to the end of his reign, and he uh, says to Solomon as he's coming to the David's coming to the end of his life and the end of his reign, and Solomon's about to take the throne, and he instructs Solomon in 1 Kings 2:7 to show kindness unto the sons of Barzillai. And as a result, Barzillai's son Chimham. Was gifted a piece of property in Bethlehem, a portion of King David's own inheritance. And some believe it was Jesse's home that Shimham received as a gift. And Shemham built an habitation there. That's a curious thing that caught my attention. This one who was not in the family of David was given a piece of David's own inheritance that inheritance that he loved, the thing that he probably cherished more than anything else in this world. The thing that he had received of his great-grandfather, his grandfather, his father, and now his own. And he would pass it along to his son, son. And some believe that this man Chimham, the son of Barzalea, was given Jesse's home, David's father's home, and Chimham built, remodeled it, and made something of it. Built in habitation, the Bible says there. Now how do we know this? Well, I'm glad you asked. 400 years after David gave that instruction to Solomon concerning the sons of Arzalei, we find the prophet Jeremiah traveling through Bethlehem after saying Jerusalem in ruins. Take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah. In chapter 41, and we're going to see how we know that Chimham, the son of Barzillai, the one who had shown kindness to David, and David gave instructions to Solomon to show kindness to the sons of Barzillai in exchange for what he had done. We see here that Chimham, the son of Barzillai, was given this, this property in Bethlehem, and what he did with it, in, in Jeremiah forty-one verse number seventeen, the prophet's traveling. He's seen the city of Jerusalem in ruins, and it says in Jeremiah forty-one seventeen, and they departed and dwelt in the habitation of Chimham, which is by Bethlehem, to go enter into Egypt. That word habitation, in Jeremiah forty-one verse number seventeen, comes from a Hebrew word which means a temporary residence. In other words, Chimham was given what many believe to be Jesse's house and the property that surrounded it, the stables and so forth. Many believe that's what Chimham was gifted as, as, a, as a result of his father showing kindness to David. And 400 years later, the prophet Jeremiah stays there And God shows us that that Chimham had this place, this habitation, this temporary residence that he had built there, that he had uh, created there and made there. Today we call those temporary residences that it talks about there. Jeremiah 41 verse number 17, we call them hotels or motels or in some cases, inns. As I have studied this, I have arrived at the opinion that the habitation of Chimham that we find in Jeremiah 41 and verse number 17 was likely the place where 600 years after Jeremiah the prophet had lodged there, a man and woman by the name of Mary and Joseph happened upon and were given a place to stay in the stable because there was no room for them in the end. You might ask this morning, Pastor, what's your point? Why did you take us through this 1,000 years of history to arrive at this place this morning? Here's the point. If we think that things in this world are out of control, then we're looking in the wrong place and need to lift up our eyes into the hills from whence cometh our help. Our view of God will determine how we view everything else. Now, let me show you this illustrated in Hebrews chapter 13. I don't want to lose the thought here, that the direction we're going, but I want to show you this in Hebrews chapter 13, how that our view of God determines how we view everything else. In Hebrews chapter 13, there's a familiar passage which says, Let your conversation, verse number 5 of Hebrews 13, be without covetousness covetousness. In other words, let your lifestyle, let uh, let the way that you live be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And so we're being taught here to lift up our eyes. Get them on the right things in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 5. And, and, and to get our eyes off the things of this world and get them onto the simple truth, if nothing less than that, we can say that God has told us, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And then look at verse number 6. So, the reason for it, that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Our view of God determines how we view everything else. Every detail of our life is under the sovereign hand of Almighty God. And what this story that we find of Bethlehem, these truths that we find concerning this little town called Bethlehem, one of the things that it teaches us Is that God is always in control of all things. For a thousand years, God moved the pieces into place for a man and a woman to find a location in a stable that prophecy might be fulfilled. Because there is no room for them in the end. So point number one: God is always in control. Of all things. Always. Point number two. It's kind of akin to point number one. But all of history is God's story. Or we could say all of history is His story. All of history is dotted with change. But God has an eternal purpose in all of it. All of history is God's story. He is the author of it. All the pieces of history put together help to reveal God's story. And some might say, well, what about the tragedies? What about the bad things? What about the horrible things that go on in life? William Shakespeare wrote, Tragedy is comedy misunderstood. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. What looks like tragedy now may just be a piece of the puzzle being put into place to bring God's expected ending to his story. The Bible talks about that as well in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse number 11, the calculation of God and the carefulness of God. For I know, God said, the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you an expected end. It's his story. By the way, he gets to write the ending. And he has. And we win. World powers rise and fall. One leader is put into office and another is removed. Athletic teams ascend to the pinnacle of their sport. And then another champion takes their place. But God remains the same. He's always wise. He's always trustworthy. He's not a God of accidents or second thoughts or emergencies. Point number two is this. All of history is God's story. Number three, last point the object of God's affection. With all the attention that is given to that little town of Bethlehem, I mean way back, a thousand years before Christ was ever born, it's mentioned in Genesis 35 when Rachel gave birth to a son that we know as Benjamin. With all the attention that is given to Bethlehem, one might think that God has a great deal of affection for a piece of property, for a geographical location. Bethlehem is evidence that God had a place and that. He had a special plan for that place. But God is not concerned about a piece of real estate. We get attached and place too much affection on things, but that's not how God works, you know? The object of God's affection is not a place. It is people. It's not a place. It's people. Go back to our text in Luke chapter 10. I'd like to show you what it says there in verse number 10. Of Luke chapter 2. The object of God's affection is a place, not people, or it's not a place, it's people. We'll show you this in Luke chapter 2 and verse number 10. It's what the angel said to the shepherds Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. See that? The object of God's affection is not a place, it is people. The source of God's love is himself. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's John 3.16, as you already know. The source of God's love is himself. We know from other portions of Scripture that the Bible tells us very clearly God is love. He's love. The sum of God's love is Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave, who'd he give? He gave Christ. So the source of God's love is himself. The sum of God's love is Christ. But the scope of God's love is the world. People. For God to love the what? The world. People. You and I think about it. You and I this morning are the objects of God's love. God sent his son for that reason. All of the significant things which could be observed about Bethlehem were for one purpose, for God to come to earth in a man's body, without ever ceasing to be God and in that man's body live a sinless life, go to the cross, shed his blood, die, and rise again from the dead. That's what all of that was about. That's what Bethlehem was about. God wants everybody everywhere to have their relationship restored with him by placing their faith in Christ alone. You see, uh, before Christ, we're all alienated from God. We're alienated by our sin. We're sinners by nature and by practice. We inherited a spiritual birth defect from our first parents, Adam and Eve. Spiritual deadness, spiritual stillbirth, and every one of us who comes into this world are alienated from God because of it. We see an example of this in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, and he's talking about how this alienation and what Christ has done for us in Colossians chapter 1 and starting in verse number 19 for it pleased the Father that in Him, Christ should all fullness dwell in other words what Paul is writing here is Jesus is God in the flesh and having made peace through the blood of His cross by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself by Him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Now, Paul is writing to believers, and he's reminding them that there was a time when you were alienated from God, just like everybody else who comes into this world. God came for that purpose. That people might no longer may no longer be alienated from Him by placing their faith in Christ alone. Now again, I want, to, I want to say this. I want this to impact you deeply this morning. You and I, with all the detail that we see written about Bethlehem this morning and all the interesting things that we've considered, you and I are the objects of God's love. You, you could say there, I, for yourself, you could say, I am the object of God's love. On all that detail all that interest that God surrounds Bethlehem with, he's more interested in you than me. And he made all that detail, all that preparation, put all those pieces into, uh, into place for one reason, to reconcile you and I to a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're the objects of God's affection and the reason why he went to so much detail to prepare a place for Christ's arrival and you know what? Just as He had prepared a place for Christ's arrival, the Lord Jesus Christ is preparing a place Amen. for those who trust Him, right. for a relationship with God, and a home in His presence for eternity. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. God spent a thousand years putting the... I mean, it was done from the foundation of the world. It was done in eternity past. But it took a thousand years of human history to get all the pieces into place. It's been a thousand years that Christ has been a preparing a place for us. Jesus said in John 14, listen, there are so many troubled hearts out there this morning and you don't need to be troubled. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, first number two, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there ye may be also and Christ is preparing a place for all who place their faith and trust in him alone for a relationship with God and a home in his presence for eternity and you know there's a key part of that phrase in verse number 3 John fourteen three. he said I will come again tonight we're going to preach a message he's coming again he came already he came as a babe in Bethlehem but he's coming again He's coming again to receive those for whom He's prepared a place. It's wonderful, I think, to celebrate Christmas with loved ones and friends. I think we all enjoy it, but it's far greater uh, to, uh, to personally know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so I'd ask the question, do you know Christ as your personal Savior? Have you received Him by faith and accepted His payment for your sin? If not, why not do that today?